This is the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Fur Neiman. If you're looking to generate wealth and passive income in the lucrative world of mobile home parks, you're in the right place. You'll discover solutions to the common legal and operational pitfalls and how to optimize parks to maximize income. Your host is in the trenches. He's a real estate attorney, financial analyst, and mobile home park investor and operator. Now, let's turn it over to Fur Neiman. Welcome back, Mobile Home Park Nation. Fur Neiman here again to have another episode of the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast. I'm going to start this episode off with uh, the word of the day. The word of the day is obstinate. Obstinate is an adjective, meaning stubbornly refusing to change one's opinion or chosen course of action despite attempts to persuade one to do so. Generally, the word obstinate is seen as a negative, uh, negative term to describe someone. I happen to think it's often positive or often helpful. Maybe that's because my wife insists that I'm sometimes obstinate. But today I'm going to give you a few examples of when my unwillingness to accept no has been beneficial for my mobile home park business. And hopefully you can use some of these examples and be a little more obstinate uh, when someone tells you no, uh, in particular when they're not supposed to. I'm not talking about just being a, a little child crying about, you know, I want another treat, something like that. But when you feel like you've had your rights uh, infringed upon or you feel like you're you're getting a raw deal. So I'm just going to roll through some examples. Um, some of these I've covered in other case studies, but some of them I've not. Uh, the first one was on when I had to fight the gas company on a park in central Illinois about relocating the gas lines. You know, the quick version is they told me I had to move the gas lines, um, you know, plus or minus a hundred thousand dollar cost. I said, no, you do. And in that instance, I was able to just keep pushing back, keep pushing back. Now I had to get some, some evidence or some ammo. So I had to pull out my title commitment, uh, the easements of record, uh, my survey, um, the actual you know, read the easements to see what the terms were was it uh, exclusive use shared use who had the responsibility to maintain who had rights to beware etc and ultimately by pushing back several times with the utility company i was able to get them to relook at the gas lines at their expense different property in northern illinois same utility company i knew that they might cave they told me that i had to upgrade all of the pedestals this park is like 135 pads and I'm, I'm just bought it in the last year. So I've got about 45 occupies. I'm like, man, if I have to upgrade every pedestal on my nickel, uh, that's going to be a big, big expense. So I fought back and said, look, I'm just trying to, you know, some of it, well, this was the old, you know, you catch more flies with honey than vinegar. And I said, look guys, I'm trying to bring more customers in to start paying for more electric and gas service. That's going to make you guys money in perpetuity. But if you guys make me pay the cost, there's gonna be about four thousand a pop. Um, if you make me pay the cost of four thousand a pop, I'm not gonna have enough money to expeditiously bring homes in. So I'm gonna move at a much slower pace. So how about we work together here and come up with some shared cost agreement? And and they were able to uh, to agree eventually, and it's gonna save me a lot of money. I was hoping that they put so I got to move the lines to the front of the homes in the street as opposed to the back of the homes in the alley. So I pitched it to them. Look, you guys, it'd be easier for you guys to maintain and to service these lines if you relocate them to the front. So because they relocated them, then they paid for the upgrades. Um, so part of it was a life safety issue that I convinced them made sense for them. 
I tried to get them to put them right in the middle of the road so they could rip up my roads because I had a $70,000 road expense coming anyway, and they didn't go for that. So I didn't get the, the true grand slam, but I'd say I got a triple or a home run out of that. So that made some sense. Um, another park, now I'm thinking about it because um, it's the same utility company, um, Western Illinois. I'm doing a 13 pad expansion and they want me to pay for the infrastructure on the electric and gas. And I basically said, look, I'm trying to bring you guys more customers. So they agreed in this instance to do a security deposit. Basically I have to put up like 6,000 per pad. And so long as I open an account with on each lot within the next five years, then they're going to rebate the 6,000. So I got to basically put it in escrow, but I can, I can certainly fill 13 pads in five years and, and that way I'll get the money back. So that's not too bad a deal either. That's some examples to push back on a utility company for service. I recently had a park, this is in central Missouri and my manager put a double wide home on a lot where there was previously a single wide and we demoed the single wide. They put the double wide there, not thinking about where the power lines were. And they put the you know half of the home directly under a power line. It was a main power line servicing the city uh, treatment plant and power plant. So, you know, they weren't going to be able to reroute the electric line easily and came time to turn on the electric and the city, this is actually not the city. It was a quasi city, um, municipal esque, uh, utility company, but it was government. And they said, we're not going to turn on the juice. And I didn't have another lot that could readily fit. This was a huge double wide. This was like 28 by 76. And I didn't have any other lots that would fit it. And the home was already there. And I had already had concrete under there, installation. I'd already started renovating the inside. So it was, was going to be a problem. So I mean, I was, it was going to cost you know, probably 20 grand to reverse this. So I gave up. And of course I didn't give up that. If I did, I wouldn't be telling you this on this episode, right? I didn't take no for an answer. So I, I drove to the town myself, met with the utility guy and, and pled with him and said, I won't do it again, blah, blah. And he said, tough. So I didn't give up still. I got out the survey and then I got out the title commitment. I got out the easement documents and there were two sets of utility easements. One of them ran north-south and it specifically said that the utility company shall have exclusive uh, access and use of this little strip of property. And we didn't have any homes in the prop in the way there, so it was a non-issue. But on the west-east utility easement, which was the one in question, it said they shall have use, but it didn't use an access, but it didn't say exclusive. So I told the guy, look, this is the more recent easement. Clearly, you guys could have used more specific language. These these easements, of course, predated me, and in some instances predated my seller because they'd been there for a long time. And I basically said, look, this one is shared use. I will continue to let you guys use your power lines, but I'm going to put this mobile home right where I got it, right underneath. And the guy said, well, I don't agree with it, but if you pull a permit for it, I'll turn on the electricity. And and we did. And now we have insurance on the home and, you know, it's the lines are higher and the lines are in very good condition because it is a main line. It's probably the biggest line in this municipality. So while it's not ideal, I felt like it was a risk mitigated position that these lines are very well maintained. There are no trees near them. They're higher than the trees, frankly. Um, so there's limited risk of a tree falling on them. 
Um, I think there's limited risk of ice causing them to you know be damaged and fall on my home. So I was able to not have to move my home. Uh, another example, um, I've given this, this is a deal in Kansas City, I get a story, I get a whole case story on this on setbacks. And basically I got the city to agree to zero setbacks. So I put the 16 by 76 foot homes right up against the property line. Whereas the competition didn't fight on the setbacks. And the reason they didn't fight, they said, oh, that's what the code says. Well, I took the position that I predate the code and I predate these more limiting restrictions. And I'm merely a parking lot and I'm looking to refill my parking spaces. And as such, I want to go back to the uh, prior code, which had no setbacks. And instead of the new code that had 25 foot perimeter setbacks, and I was able to do so. I still had to maintain Missouri fire code of 10 feet between homes, so that wasn't an issue. These were spacious lots from a side perimeter, but on the property perimeter, I would have had to go with much shorter homes if I had uh, caved on this municipality there. Next example, this was in Texas, and there was a local ordinance that said if you if you're you know a tenant-owned mobile home, not a mostly not mobile home. If you're a if you're a regular site-built house, you're allowed to rent it out. But if it's a mobile home, you are not allowed to rent it out. You can only sell them. Well, the business plan here was to not have rental proper rental homes, so we wanted to sell them. So did some research, found some case law through HUD and some. Um, not necessarily case law in some instances, but some, some bad press and some regulatory pain for municipalities that had discriminatory housing rules. We, this, was, this, this municipality was largely white, and I was able to, they had some Hispanic population, and ironically, the city attorney um, was a Hispanic woman. But we took the position that this um, rule of not allowing rentals was discriminatory against people of color. And they didn't believe me, they didn't like that. I said, look, all else being equal statistically, um, people in mobile home parks are lower income than people not in mobile home parks. People in mobile home parks have a disproportionate uh, percentage of minority um, as opposed to white people. And as I see it, you are looking to discriminate against landlords in mobile home parks, thereby discriminating against poor people and people of color and this law on its face uh, is basically, it looks like you guys don't want any black people in your town. Which, what percentage of your town is black? Uh, zero? Ah, it looks like you guys are successful. Now that's uh, very discriminatory, so we're going to have to take this to the Department of HUD. And they got real nervous, and they said, okay, 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 we'll change the ordinance. Which took, you know, the normal process, um, a couple months, but we got them to literally rewrite the city code to allow rentals of mobile homes in mobile home parks uh, on the backs of discriminatory claim. Another time where I didn't say no was on endorsements on title commitment. You can and we'd like to get a zoning endorsement or an access and use endorsement or a survey endorsement. And sometimes the title companies are difficult and they won't do it or they won't do it unless you produce a massive amount of data. Um, like, you know, a, a specific resolution by a municipality granting the zoning on this particular trailer park, which is generally not something you can do within a short due diligence time frame. So eventually you got to push back on title companies, show them why they're being irrational, try to show them the risk reward and, you know, the essentially the low probability of this being an issue for their insurance claim. So I've had some success in getting them to cave on endorsements. Um, and sometimes endorsements are free, depending on the state, depending on the type. Sometimes they're 250 500 bucks. 
but generally we like to use endorsements when we review title. Um, another example of not taking no for an answer um, is, you know, when if you're if you I've had people try to poach homes out of my park, and we have an anti-poaching sign in front of the park, and we have a right of first refusal in the lease, so we take the position that you can't poach from our park without us knowing. And generally, if we know, we're going to probably get in the middle of it. And somebody broke the rules on that a couple times on me. And I've they've already moved the home or bought the home, that title, and I've just played hardball. And, and it helps having a law division, uh, you know, new separate entity, but a law division down the hall. And I can quickly you know, get in their grill and get them to, to cave. Um, and then one time we bought a park, home from a park, they had a right of first fuse in their lease. We asked them if they wanted to buy the home. We went through the, we got a copy of the lease and we followed the step-by-step -step in the lease. And the manager was asleep at the switch. They had so many days to respond. They didn't do it. So we began to move the home out and they put a U-Haul truck right in front of the home. So we couldn't move it, which is a bad idea. I mean, it's like the equivalent of self-help remedy. And I could argue it was a tortious interference of my business. Um, but they weren't budging and I couldn't move the U-Haul truck. So we weren't budging and they weren't budging. So eventually they paid us and we made like 15,000 on the home and sold it back to them. But we had followed the rules. Um, we generally don't want to poach and don't want to uh, piss off other people. They had been very bad to this tenant. So he's like, look, they don't want to buy it. So we went through the proper channel and their manager, I don't think ever took it up to the flagpole to the regional or to the super regional or general council. And we ended up not getting the home, but we made a little money on it. Um, another example, um, sometimes cities don't enforce the rules. I have a park in St. Louis where, St. Louis Metro, the I found in the code during my zoning letter research that there's a permit required. Well, the seller built the park years and years ago, like in the 50s or 60s. Um, and, he's, and it predated the city. So it predated the city code. So he said, look, I, there's no permit. I don't pay for a permit. And, I, and he, he was an honest guy and he had very detailed records. And he's like, I don't pay a permit. Well, I looked it up and it was not that expensive. I mean, it was like $5 per lot. So I called the city and said, I'd like you guys to give me the permit. And they go, well, we don't really have a process to do it. And we don't, none of the parks in this town have permits. So I was like, well, I'm not really that comfortable. I ended up doing a lot of case law research on this and eventually got him to acknowledge uh, in writing that there is a permit procedure, procedure, but they're not enforcing it. Um, and I, and I kind of beefed it up even more because I wanted to make sure that if the new administration came in, it wouldn't be a problem for me because I couldn't frankly comply. Excuse me. I couldn't frankly comply because, you know, the, the permit requirements had a certain density and minimum land area and I wasn't big enough or I was too dense. So if they started implementing the permit process, I wasn't able to get approved. Um, which wasn't really fair because I predated the code. So in theory, I was, well, in reality, if they tried to push it, I'm gonna, I was going to give them a whole lot of grief and demand a hearing and a right to cure and you know, a whole bunch of other stuff. But ultimately, I didn't push back, or I didn't, I did push back, and then I got them to give me something in writing acknowledging that they were not enforcing the rule and that they weren't doing it on other parks. And there was, this was about a $3 million park, but there was one down the street that was like $30 million. So I figured... If they ever change their policy, the guy on the street's going to be uh, very interested in teaming up. And he'd frankly pay my legal fees to get me to fight it on their behalf, and I would ride their coattails. 
Because it, it wouldn't work. It wouldn't work taking always spring court. Um, and it never happened. There's never been a problem. But I'm, you know, don't trust but verify, as I say. You know, I was a little paranoid. Um, just in general, I I don't like. It happens mostly with government. I have a negative government tone, I guess. But having spent five years in government, um, I know mediocrity when I see it. And one thing that frustrates the heck out of me is when a bureaucrat says, well, you can't do that. I said, well, why not? What's well, against the rules, against the law. Uh, okay, I, I didn't know that. Uh, please show me the ordinance or rule or statute or whatever, so just so I can have it for my records. And I generally will just, you know, basically, I'm the manager, you know, my boss, the owners, our lawyer, they're not gonna let me just take your word. Um, so I need to get the ordinance. And most of the time, they're just crickets. They don't have it. I mean, I had one case where in this particular state, we were we were allowed to give away homes for free. And if you sold the home, there was a warranty of habitability. But these homes were, some of them had four walls in an open shell. Like there was, there was no bathroom. There was clearly no, there was no furnace. It was just, you know, like a construction trailer. So it was actually, it was a mobile home. That, it was a HUD home. It just had been gutted by a previous owner. So we didn't want to renovate them. So we just gave them away. Well, the city said you can't give them away it's unless they have a furnace and a heater and uh sink and a bathtub and a stove and a fridge and i'm like that's i said okay well my understanding from the state law is that that implies if i sell the home but i'm not selling the home i actually did have title to them but i gave them away like a quit claim deed i said but if there's a local ordinance by all means um as manager i want to do my best to follow it. please send me a copy of that and i'll take it right up to the flagpole and the ownership will change their opinion immediately crickets crickets we asked the guy to follow up he goes well that used to be the rule i'm sure it's in there i just, I just couldn't find it but i know that's the law i've been here forever like okay sure you did buddy i um, mean we got away with it um you know, get away got away with it sounds bad we, we we got away with it because we were allowed to do it legally and they turned on the electricity they were they were precluding the next owner from putting on the, putting the electricity in their name which they needed to renovate the home and and all that jazz um, another example of not taking no for an answer is on property taxes. Um, most states, most counties give you a notice of valuation. And, if it in, and for the most part, if they increase it, they have to. Most of them give it to you anyway. If they increase it, the value, then you have to, they have to give you notice. And then there's an appeal process. And I've got an entire another episode on the various levels of appeal, but um, it's amazing how many people just roll over and take it, even if the city is discriminating, which under the county appraiser's office is discriminating against you and only reappraising your property because you're the recent sale, which by rule is a spot appraisal or chasing the sale, which is not in the best practices or generally accepted appraisal principles. Um, there's a guidebook, I've quoted it many times in tax appeals, by the International Association of Assessing Officers that goes over these definitions and these procedures. And sometimes they'll cave, but most times they don't cave at the local level. And they just say, uh, we don't understand. And they want you to go away. Then you go to the Board of Equalization. And a lot of the time they still say, just go away. And you don't. I mean, I have before on if the, if the it doesn't make sense, you know, risk reward or cost benefit analysis. Sometimes I'll say, eh, whatever, it's not that it's not worth my time. But a lot of times it is worth your time. And then you go to the state tax commission or the board of tax appeals, wherever that entity is in that state, and just keep pushing back. And then sometimes you can just settle 
Um, and it works out well. Sometimes you got to go by the mat. Um, and sometimes even beyond that, and you got to peel the next level. But property taxes are, depends on the jurisdiction, but in, for the most part, property taxes are one of the biggest expenses in your operation. So if you can get your taxes, um, I just got a check the other day for one, it was $16,000 refund check. So and I was in the process of a refinance. So I really wanted to get that victory because, you know, 16 grand at a 10 cap is 160 in value. At a five cap, which is what I was targeting on my reappraisal for my refinance, that's a $320,000 value swing, which on a cash up refinance, you're talking about a quarter million dollars extra cash out by fighting a tax appeal. And you can generally fight a tax appeal for, oh, generally 5,000 in legal and 5,000 or less in appraisal and court cost. So, I mean, 10,000 is not for the faint heart. And my example, where I got 16 back, it was um, such an obvious, obviously poor job by the county that they got to the state and the state didn't even make me go to trial. They just told the county, you're gonna lose deferred and you're wasting the court's resources. So we suggest you settle. So they gave me, I would have settled somewhere in the middle, not in the middle, but I would have settled with like 15 or 20% increase. And they put it all the way back to 0% increase. And what's funny is I just got the notice of value. And this has been over a year and a half ago, but it took forever to get my check because the processes um, that you have to go through and all the dropped balls by the levels of bureaucracy. But they just reappraised all the trailer parks in that county because they, they got tipped off, so to speak, that my purchase price uh, was an indication that the, the, the appraisals for the other parks was low, but they didn't increase mine again. So there's like a group of owners in this town that are getting together to do an appeal and I'm the, I'm going to sit it out because I went up by like inflation, like 5% or something. And they all went up a hundred percent. So I guess I'm probably not going to get invited to many happy hours in that town, but I don't know friends anyway. Um, so anyway, this is a few examples. Um, I could come up with probably a lot more, um, you know, dealing with vendors or inspectors or, you know, retrades with sellers. That would be a good one. Um, you know, where the seller says X or, um, or if I'm selling and the, and the buyer tries to retrade, just pushing back. I'm, I'm selling a park right now in St. Louis and, um, you know, they retraded for, you know, a number of things they found in their inspection report. And it was a shakedown, in my opinion. It was like, these aren't real. These aren't the real cost. You're giving massive ranges. Oh, um, trim trees, 2000 to 52000 Like, well, which is it? And oh, we'll just settle in the middle. Like, no. I could literally get out there Saturday morning and trim these down myself. I can see the photos you produced. Or just cherry-pick photos. So... Um, you know, you know, saying no to retrade to uh, on a retrade sometimes works. It's hard to do because it's like that that you know awkward time of I don't want to blow the deal. But I found that most people um, are not the, the retrade is a shakedown. Um, sometimes it's on, based on legitimate information, but it still is often not necessary. Um, dealing with wholesalers is it should be a whole other, I should do a whole other episode on that, dealing with wholesalers because. Um, that can be a pretty sloppy process, um, but not taking no for an answer is helpful. And in that instance, let me think what else. Yeah, that's about all I can think of off the top of my head. Um, just in general, just knowing, oh, appraisers. Oh, that's one that comes up 
man, I'm not the best at that though. Um, I've had some wins, but I've had some that didn't go well. Where appraisers are use garbage comps, and you try to retrade with them, or you try to not take that for an answer, and they'll say, "You're not my client. The bank's my client." So I have had success in banks throwing out appraisals when they're horribly egregious. But typically, the bank has to report a new a reappraisal to the regulatory body, so they're really leery about doing it. Plus, banks don't want to take risk anyway, so it's harder to do in a refinance. But on a on an acquisition, if the deal's going to fall through. I've had the bank start appraisals. I've had the appraiser change his data on two occasions, but that's hard. I've had the appraiser just tell me to go pound sand. One time it was real bad, and I actually had to file a, I didn't have to, but I did file, it's not a bar complaint, whatever they call it, an appraiser complaint with the Iowa Real Estate Commission. And they didn't do anything. They just said, oh, well, it's subjective. And I was like, this person, I literally gave them comps that I found that are within six months in this county, and they chose to use comps from considerably smaller markets four to eight hours away two years ago. Like they're just being lazy. And then as a result, you know, when the market changed in this time period from, you know, what was eight and nine caps to five and six caps, they're throwing in like 11 cap comps from town. One town had like 160 people, and it was so bad that the town that I was in was had a higher population than all five towns in the comps that this appraiser used. So, and I, and I still lost on that. Um, so I, you know, I didn't. I was pretty obstinate, I guess, as the lesson goes. But that's because of the lack of you know connection between me and the appraiser. It has to go through the bank and the regulatory regime, and just the nature of who disciplines appraisers, their own. Um, it's kind of a mixed bag. So I've had to fight probably a half a dozen or more bad appraisals. Won some, tied some, lost some. So I'd say give it a shot, but it's definitely more of an uphill battle, even when you're right. Like if you do a tax appeal and you're right and you keep fighting it, like ultimately you're going to win most of the time. But if you, on an appraisal, sometimes they just tell you to go away. So I've had to switch banks. That's that's the other pain is if, if, you, if the bank won't throw out the appraisal and the appraiser won't, redo his or her work, then you're basically stuck with going to a new bank and starting from scratch. And you've got a sunk cost of the appraisal and your time. And then if you're, if you got a short shot clock on your due diligence, um, you might not have time. So practical problem um, is the timeline on that, but it's an opportunity to not say, I'll just suck it up anyway, and just try to push back. So lesson learned for the day is know when to be obstinate and when to push back. Till next time, thanks and God bless. You've been listening to the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Ferd Neiman. Ready to learn more? Go to www.themobilehomelawyer.com for free resources and materials to help you succeed. If you love the podcast, go to Apple Podcasts, give us your review and subscribe today. Thank you for listening. Neither the Supreme Court of Missouri nor the Missouri Bar reviews nor approves certifying organizations or specialist designations. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely upon advertisements.